Hello and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the foods that make it from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. Each week on the podcast, we pick one paper from the symposium's long history and ask its author to come and help us tell their story to you. And this week, it is our last episode of the season. Thank you so much for tuning in and being with us these past eight weeks. A final reminder to rate and review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're able, we are always so grateful for your contributions to this educational nonprofit podcast. You can donate via our website, and UK listeners can donate £20 or less to Oxtails by texting OXTALES20 to 70085. That's O-X-T-A-L-E-S-2-0 to 70085. We plan to be back again for Season 3 sometime next year, but since that's a lifetime in podcasting years, we thought we'd leave you with a story that can really percolate. No matter where in the world you go, people have local legends that they tell about beloved foods. Usually these stories are colorful and interesting, but when less-than-true tales about the past are used to inform important choices in the present, it's time to separate food fact from food myth. Today on Ox Tales, our guest does just that, with a myth so pernicious it has been told for over 140 years in the country of its origin, the Philippines. The food it's about? Coffee. Yeah, my name is Bel Castro from the Philippines, and I currently work as assistant dean at Enderon Colleges. 2002 was the rise of the specialty coffee, you know, in the Philippines anyways. There were a lot of coffee shops, and while Starbucks was here, at that time, by far, the one that had the most stores was a chain called Figaro that was promoting Philippine coffee, and the way to promote coffee, actually, it's that like whiskey, like beer, like many other beverages, that you need to have a story. Figaro supports the local coffee industry and its aim in putting the Philippines... But when she caught wind of the story that was being told by this new wave of specialty coffee shops, she could tell immediately that something about it was not quite right. It's a bit too, it's a bit too clean, and I suspect that there was more there. The story came in a few versions of the same basic events which started with the arrival of coffee to the Philippines. Basically, what, what they tell you is that, and is that in 1740 or about that time, the coffee came to the Philippines aboard the Manila Galleons. Manila Galleons were trading ships for Spain, who at the time was the colonial ruler. Spain was also Catholic, so the story goes, the first person to bring coffee beans to the islands was a monk. And nobody can seem to agree whether this monk was one monk or three monks and whether it was a Franciscan or whether it was a Dominican or... So this monk, or monks, plants these beans near Lipa, which is a small city in the province of Batangas, which has the climate and volcanic soil in which coffee thrives. And then from there... Everybody started planting it, and then in 1888 or 1889, uh, the Philippines became the fourth largest producer of coffee in the world. And at one point, we were the only coffee producer in the world. And that ended because of a coffee blight that destroyed everything, hence the fall of what they called the grandeur that was Lipa. What is called the grandeur that was Lipa is perhaps the most outrageous part of the story, Yet, oddly enough, it is the only kernel of truth. 
It refers to a brief period of time in which coffee-growing families in Lipa experienced an outrageous kind of overnight wealth from their coffee crops, and proceeded to celebrate with an opulence that went unrivaled by the palaces of Versailles. Then you have stories of people throwing money around, uh, burning money to use as light. The, they would throw rings into the fields at night, and there would be a game to try to find them, and they would burn money as a source of light to try to find them. That those are the kinds of stories. Some of the women held competitions with each other to see who could dress the most lavishly. You look at the pictures, and they have all these fabrics of uh, the clothes or fabrics are made from. France with Belgian lace, and then when the competition became even more fierce, when everybody had the same thing, then they started putting things like diamonds on their slippers. The diamonds on their slippers, I thought, was an exaggeration. Maybe we're talking one diamond or one little sparkly thing. Until I met a grandson who actually said, "No, that was my grandma," and it was she had rocks on her shoes. But these treasure hunts and diamond shoes left as quickly as they had come. The question, though, is what actually happened that allowed it in the first place, and why did it all come to an end? The myth says that in the 1880s, a disease of the coffee plant ravaged crops in major producing countries worldwide. This left a gap in the world market, from which coffee growers in Lipa suddenly benefited to a level beyond their wildest dreams. But by the early 1890s, the disease descended on Lipa. Putting an end to the grandeur forever, and if you believe this story, as many do, then it can be held up as a beacon of hope for Philippine coffee growers, which Bell says is the problem. Basically, the history of coffee in the Philippines, the way it is told, is told as a fairy tale of great golden days. That if you work hard and if we do our job right, I mean, we can go back to it. When actually, it should be a cautionary tale. Why should it be a cautionary tale? We are about to find out as Bell debunks this myth piece by piece. To understand the history of coffee in the Philippines requires some understanding of its history of colonization. Well, why did Spain come to? Why did Magellan end up in the Philippines anyway? He was looking for the spice lands. When he got here, he found no spices. Right, so that was fifteen twenty one. But you jump a couple of hundred years later, and we were what? We were was a jumping-off point to access China, and that's what the galleon trade was. Manila, the capital, was in the middle of two huge economic destinations: Mexico, which was already part of the Spanish Kingdom, and China, where valuable goods like spices were bought and traded on the galleons. Since it was stopping in Manila anyway, uh, we, we, what did we have? We had land, we had labor. So that's when they started planting not just coffee, but prior to that, they were already doing wheat. They were also doing. Uh, they were also planting uh, chocolate, but then coffee. Uh, coffee was becoming a global product already. So they just. I I would imagine they saw it as something that could become a commodity that could be bought and sold. Because again, there was no domestic consumption. We had the weather for it. We had the labor. We had the land. The Spanish took advantage of these resources and built coffee plantations. I think I have to mention that we were so far from Spain. You're so far from Spain that for them to govern was that they had to go through the church, actually. But what we know from history is that we did have a polo system here, and the polo system is almost like, you know, it's like basically slavery. 
The polo system was a system of forced labor for all Filipino men who couldn't afford to get out of it by paying a tax to Spain through the church. There were, of course, those few wealthy land-owning families like in Lipa, but most Filipinos did not economically benefit from the coffee industry, even though their labor supported it. As with other crops around the world like sugar and cotton, coffee tells the story of commodity colonialism. If you just follow the, the spread of coffee, it's the spread of colonialism. And you will see the areas, the areas that got into it first was because the colonizing masters were consumers. Spain stands a little different because they really saw it as a way of, of making money. It became an item of trade. In fact, by the time the plantations were producing in the Philippines, the world coffee market was ballooning to meet increasing global consumption production had never been higher. In a nutshell, by this time already, we already uh, Java was producing a lot of coffee in Indonesia under the Dutch. And Brazil already was making coffee. And a lot of the areas in the Caribbean were making coffee also. But as we know, there was trouble on the horizon. What is claimed is that um, the reason why this whole thing ended was there was a blight it could have been coffee leaf rust. It all could also have been wood borers. But basically, the story says it decimated all the fields in quite a uh, catastrophic manner. So it all ended. So the myth goes, the coffee leaf rust decimated the biggest plantations in the world, in Brazil and Indonesia, allowing the Lipenos a sudden and unlikely near-global monopoly for those few golden years. But then the pestilence descended upon their crops destroying them and putting an end to the Philippines' dominance in the world coffee market. But Bell isn't so sure this story holds water. Now, that story is partially true. That we do know there was a coffee leaf rust, and it actually came to us from abroad. It, we did know that it ended coffee in Ceylon, and that we know it affected also other countries. But then, uh, you think about something like phylloxera, right? We do know that it destroyed all the vineyards in France, but it did not end the wine industry. Okay, let's concede that they lost all their trees. Um, why didn't they replant? If it, was really, if it was really making them so much money, why didn't they replant? So I, I think that there had to be other things at play. There were other things at play. And these things had little to do with plant pathogens and much more to do with social upheaval and the international market. What was going on in the world at around the same time? It's a confluence of events. The big thing, one, that I think that made people rich in the first place was that there was a temporary drop in the production of Brazil. And their, their production was not eradicated, but there was a drop because it was the end of the slave system there. It never really dropped to zero because even when the big landowners uh, left, um, there were still people who were taking over the trees and, produ and producing it. But when you look at the charts, you can see it is a big drop. And the same thing was happening also in Indonesia, that there was a drop in production, yes, because of the leaf rust, but also was tied into the end of slavery. For a few years, the two biggest global exporters of coffee had significant decreases in production. Such a decrease in supply alone would have caused global coffee prices to rise, allowing producers like the Philippines to reap the benefits. But that wasn't the only reason the Lipenios got lucky. Then we see several things were happening at the same time. One was coffee was already a commodity globally. In fact, one of the first things in commodity markets in the exchanges in London was coffee. 
Shrewd coffee market speculators in the U.S. and in Europe were watching what was going on in Brazil and saw an opportunity. Yes, an opportunity to drive prices. They created a price bubble by speculating on lower supplies for the coming years, low supply equals high price, and selling futures accordingly. It was speculation. And it was very slow speculation because at the time there was still no telegraph. So they didn't really know what the prices of things were. And even here, even as early as then, people were already taking crop loans. You know, to get in on this brown gold, you know, you're surrounded by all these people who have mansions and have diamonds on their feet. You want to get in. Speculators abroad and landowners in the Philippines rushed in to take a risk on the brown gold. For a few years from 1886 to 88, these risks paid off, creating the overnight millionaires in Lipa. And then it crashed. There, there was a big coffee crash of, I think, 1888-1889. So they basically concealed the fact that the crop coming out of Brazil was going to be more than what was expected. And so it was catastrophic for a lot of people who were holding the, co the contracts on the futures. Now, if you know Philippine history, right in the middle of this, we were now in a war. In some old textbooks, they call it the Philippine-Spanish insurrection, but with us, it's just the American war. You know, so we thought we were going to be fighting the Spanish, and then the Americans going to help us, and we thought we were going to be liberated. Instead, together with Peru, Fiji, in the Treaty of Paris, basically, we were all went under them. We went just from one colonizer to another. After the war and the market crash, Coffee growers eventually switched over to sugarcane, tobacco, and hemp. The wealthy remained wealthy, just with fewer diamonds, and the poor remained poor. And the new American occupiers began importing vast amounts of coffee for their own consumption. This all complicates the narrative quite a bit from the simple plague and devastation story. But what about the claim that, during those years of low global supply, the Philippines dominated the world coffee market? When I, when I first read this more than 10 years ago, and it says that we were, number one, the fourth largest producer in the world, and also at one point we were the only producer in the world, I just went back to the facts. And tracing this from, like, who said that? Bell sleuthed around in the bibliographies of all of the articles that claimed these figures. And every goes back to one book, which was written by David Bulbeck et al., which is basically the commodities in the 17th, 18th century. And then you look at that one line, it's just one line in a book, and it doesn't even have a footnote. So in my curiosity, I actually write Mr. Bulbeck, who writes back and looks at it, and then says, um, you know, we only got that from old Dutch records. He saw it and, it, and and actually in succeeding papers, he leaves it out altogether. A rather uncertain foundation for a myth of such largesse to rest upon. Now, so that's, that's what we base it on. As for production volumes, all you have to do is to look at export figures, and there were export figures already. And Brazil is still there, and Indonesia is still there, and even Suriname is still there, and... In most texts, there's just, there's just no mention. And you would think that we were really the fourth largest producer in the world, and at one point the only producer in the world, that somebody else would have made a recording of this somewhere. So was all of this just a case of fudged numbers told to prop up a story of former greatness? Bell doesn't care what the rank of the Philippines is among coffee producers. That's not the part of the myth that gets her angry. The thing that does, she quotes from an old promotional pamphlet from the Philippine Coffee Board. 
What happens in Brazil determines what happens to coffee trading prices around the world. My favorite sentence comes up next. If not for some unfortunate twist of nature, that power could have belonged to the Philippines. This dangling of the false hope in front of our current coffee farmers, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And it is one, this is one of the first things I read then that I said, this can't be right. What this story is saying is basically that we were great before, we can be great again. Sound familiar? It ignores the vast improbability of such a thing ever recurring. For one thing, the Philippines is a long way from even dreaming of competing with Brazil in coffee production. Just look at the Philippine landmass and just look at the Brazilian landmass. Look at their population and you look at ours and it just didn't make sense. And then for the other, the Philippines still consumes all the coffee it produces, mostly the Robusta variety used in instant coffee, and yet they still import a large quantity more. Basically, we import a lot of Arabica coffee because we drink it all, but we were not exporting any Robusta coffee anymore because we were just drinking it all. And that is a concern for a country with our GNP and GDP because to import all that coffee is uh, foreign currency going out. The government and proponents of coffee production say that all that needs to be done is to increase the crop production using modern methods you know, using technology and strains and all that is to triple the production of each hectare of coffee from what it is now to multiply it. I, go, I said, that sounds like a commodity story to me, not a quality story. But the, way, but, but the story you tell them, the hope you give them is that, that we, this, this can be a specialty product and whatever, and then the prices will come back and, and you know, and the good times will come back. And it just doesn't make sense. Again, I make enemies by talking like this and saying I'm such a pessimist and, you know, but I'm just looking at the data. The thread running through this data, and consequently what is lacking from the myth, is colonialism. Countries conquering other countries and taking control of their land, labor, and resources. And while the age of seafaring colonial conquerors is over, global heavyweights still dictate how trade happens. And for the Philippine coffee industry... Most farmers are stuck in the same vulnerable position as they were 150 years ago, as commodity growers. Nobody's going to get rich growing a commodity, no matter how many times you increase the land's productivity. Not by planting Robusta anyway and selling all of it to Nestle. Because who's buying it? It's Nestle. Because what they're making, what they're growing, is coffee as a commodity for the production of instant coffee, not specialty coffee. There's no way. There's no way that community is going to be able to produce the volume that is going to give them the kind of prosperity that will allow them to put diamonds on their shoes. The solution, according to Bell, is to acknowledge the weak position that commodities put you into, and then to try to get out of it. The the solution has to be political, I think. It has to be trade, to have enough political and economic strength that you can actually... uh, Look at smaller countries, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. They don't make everything. If we continue to just produce items, commodities, then you're in the commodity trap. So what does this look like for the coffee industry? Increasing added value to the coffee crops by not only growing the beans, but roasting them. And then the next step is to get them to um, grow a quality coffee, because right now the quality is very inconsistent, to grow a quality coffee so you can actually have a quality green coffee, and so you can have a quality roasted coffee from which you can make specialty coffee that you can sell for that money. It's not likely that coffee growers will ever again burn banknotes to search for diamond rings, 
but getting into roasting could at least take them out of the low-priced commodity market. It could also mean more infrastructure and more small-scale Filipino-owned businesses, less selling at dirt-cheap prices to Nestle, and less big money in the hands of the few wealthy landowners. But Bell is careful to not replicate the trappings of the myth in her solutions, particularly around what it means for economic power on the global scale. So when I, when I do talk to students about this, and I say, we cannot control the prices. For as long as the U.S. is there and for as long as Brazil is there, we're just riding. We're just riding on this. As for Bell's detractors in the coffee industry, they don't like the fact that she's telling this story. This is going to ruffle feathers, though. Because they think it's not the right story to motivate the farmers. They don't want me to tell the story because they're quite happy with the story, (laughs) the way it's being told. Because, no, 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 you'll discourage them. Okay, okay, you'll discourage them because anyway, it's in the past and we can't change the past. We'll just focus on what we can do. And I go, no, you're prefacing everything that you're planning to do now by bringing up the past. But is the truth being discouraging a good enough reason to ignore it? Bell certainly doesn't think so. In fact, for today's coffee farmers, she argues, there's a lot of value to be found in the story of what actually happened to Lipa in the 1880s and 1890s. And that value is as a cautionary tale. Well, that's it, folks, our last episode for the season. Thank you so much for being with us, and we really hope you've enjoyed it. A huge thanks to our guest today, Belle Castro. Her symposium paper, How Coffee Killed a Town, Investigating the Rise and Fall of Coffee in Lipa, Batangas, will be published in the 2018 proceedings this coming summer, 2019. Follow Belle on social media at bell.s.castro. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigurther, and mixed by Thomas Krauss. Editorial oversight is provided by Fiona Sinclair and Naomi Duguid. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Oxtails is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Food Symposium. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us make Season 3 a reality, please consider making a donation on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Listeners in the UK can donate £20 by texting the word OXTALES20 to 70085. That's O-X-T-A-L-E-S 20 to 70085. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, Thomas Krauss, Uritter, Nitoy Gonzalez and his Rondella, and the American Regimental Band. Other sounds accessed from archive.org and freesound.org. To learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Oxford Food Simp and Instagram at Oxford Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, it is never too late to subscribe to us and give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. That's it for now. We truly hope you've enjoyed and we'll see you next year with some more Oxtails.